I love angry women because angry women are free. Reading is a collaboration between the writer and the reader. If Michelle Obama had natural hair, Barack Obama would not have won. Biblioteket er det originale internet. Det er det, jeg We need this Europe. And that's why we have libraries. Knowledge. Knowledge is power. Det her er live for det kongelige bibliotek. Stedet, hvor vi samler alt det bedste fra vores livescene her på Den Sorte Diamant. Din vært, Lise Bak Hansen. Danmark er et af de lande, hvor der er meget mere social mobilitet end i andre lande. Helt i modsætning til USA, hvor den amerikanske drøm er blevet til en myte. Jo, der er få, der formår at bevæge sig fra bunden og op til toppen, hvor 1% af de rigeste befinder sig. Men de er så usædvanlige, at det bliver slået stort op i medierne, hver gang det lykkes. Det her er bare en af de mange pointer, som Joseph Stiglitz, Nobelpristager i økonomi, kommer ind på i denne samtale, du skal høre lige om lidt, med Nora Reddington, hvor de ser på den økonomiske omvæltning i USA og Europa lige nu. Og du kan også glæde dig til at høre Stiglitz bud på nogle af de største udfordringer, verden står overfor lige nu. Rigtig god fornøjelse. Welcome everybody. I need to know how many trained economists do we have in the audience? The reason I ask about the, the numbers of uh, economists in the audience is because like you like you said yes to teach us a class of economics like that you will educate us in economics in five minutes you will learn us like the three most important concepts. Okay. Well, that was all uh, when he asked me to uh, try to summarize uh all of what people do for years and years in five minutes. That's a real challenge. So I suppose the first thing is uh, resources are scarce. Uh, and uh, the essential questions are uh, what gets produced, how it gets produced, for whom it gets produced. But a fourth question that is often not focused upon is who decides the answers to these questions? And that's really almost on the verge of politics, but it's really a key issue. So the second uh, basic idea is um, markets are an important mechanism for answering those questions, for allocating resources, but markets are only one of the mechanisms. And over the last 50 years, we've learned both the strengths of, strengths of markets, but also the limits, when and why they often don't work. So right now, I think you're seeing energy markets not working very well in Europe. Um, and that's just one uh, example. Um, we see lots of, in, in the US, we've had uh, exploitation, we, we had shortages of baby formula. Markets didn't work. We've had exploitation. The drug companies caused the opioid crisis uh, where life expectancy has been going down in the United States for years now. Um, so there are these huge problems uh, as well as strengths and trying to understand uh, the richer ecology. So, so what about uh, the concepts of notions of uh, inflation, interest rates, supply, demand, Phillips curve, uh, Keynes, Karl Marx, Ricardo, all this they teach at the university. You don't need to know all these concepts in order to become an economist. 
Um, well, they're, they're useful, and that gets you into some of the controversies. I mean, obviously, if markets worked perfectly, there wouldn't be unemployment. But, and there are some economists who actually believe there's no such thing as unemployment. They say that when people are unemployed, they're just enjoying leisure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my response to that is usually when people are enjoying leisure, they're happy. Uh, but when people are unemployed, they do things like families break up, their suicide rates go up. They're all symptoms that they're not happy. And so it's very clear the market often doesn't work. Hmm. So, so sum up scarcity, the way markets work, that they're imperfect, and that politics matters. That's, That's the right. most, okay. So now you're all trained economists, <laughs> and, and afterwards you can pick up a diploma uh, and you can just put it on your resume. Inflation, the current, the current economic turmoil, like everything is up in there. It's, it's such an exciting time to be an economist. I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> but today, like, we had the, in, the inflation figures out in Denmark, 8.9, in the US is 8.5, in the European Union is 9.5. Like, what is going on? Should we be excited or scared? Uh, well, I think uh, both. Uh, I, I think you should be scared because I'm almost sure that the central banks, the ECB and the Federal Reserve are going to mess it up. Um, and they're going to mess it up because I think uh, they're going to raise interest rates too fast, too far, and cause an economic downturn. And uh, this is an example, you were you know, mentioning a number of names. Ideology plays a very big role in economics, and even in, quote, scientific economics. So people, uh, if you're a central banker, one of the things that happens is uh, it gets into your DNA that whenever you see inflation, you raise interest rates, whatever the cause, whatever the consequence. That's what, if you're a central banker, that's what you do. But this inflation is not like a normal inflation. A normal inflation, normal, I mean, but usual inflation is there's excess demand could be because the government's printed too much money or uh, expenditures are too high, uh, but there's excess demand and uh, demanding supply, if there's excess demand, prices go up. But this is caused by supply shortages. And uh, perfectly predictable, uh, uh, if you don't, uh, in the United States, for instance, uh, the car companies forgot to order ships. <laughs> A little mistake. So when the pandemic ended, uh, they wanted to start producing cars. People wanted to buy cars. They couldn't produce cars. And the result of that is car prices went way up. And that is was a very big part of our inflation. But that was also was a shortage of food. You know, food prices went up, um, energy prices went up, particularly with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And all of that led to inflation. The interesting thing in the United States where we don't have some of the, we didn't make the terrible mistake of getting excessively dependent on Russian gas. Oh. 
You know, that do, was... Do you say something about Europe or... Something? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I wrote in one of my books, I, I, you know, I hate to uh, say I told you so, yeah. but, I'm, <laughs> but I'm about to say that. Um, in, in one of my books uh, called Making Globalization Work that I wrote in 2006, I said very explicitly, it was very, very foolish for Germany and Europe to become so dependent on Russian gas. You know, whatever you think of Russia, it was not reliable. And what I say now, you know, the sun is not reliable, but solar renewable energy is so much more reliable than being dependent on authoritarian governments. But maybe that's because we're in Europe, we believe in the good, goodness of everyone, even in Putin, and we believe in, <laughs> we believe in interdependence and world trade and trade that we should all connect to each other. Yeah, I mean, some of that is cross-Atlantic, our President Bush looked and said, he looked into the eyes of Putin and he said, this is somebody I can trust. Yeah. But when I went to Russia, I didn't think that. <laughs> but the, the fundamental problem was the reliance on markets. And markets work sometimes, as I said before, but not others. Markets don't reflect the uh, consequences of uh, CO2 pollution and global climate change. I mean, you just don't deal with that. Markets also don't deal well with risk. Hmm. And that was to the point I was trying to make. You know, the, being dependent on Russian gas was just extraordinarily risky, but markets are short term. Hmm. And they said, oh, we can get Russian gas for a little bit cheaper and we can save a little money. Looking forward, you say, well, that's, an, you know, that's a stupid thing to do. Uh, because you're going, if Russia changes and uh, something happens and you don't have Russian gas, you're going to be in a difficult place. I, I used to work in politics, and, and whenever you lose an argument, which happens quite often, then you just say, let's look to the future. Uh, so how do we solve this problem of uh, inflation now it's here? Well, so first, what I said is, it's a supply-side uh, problem. And which, which means it's a supply-side problem, which means for all that, trade economists... That, that, that the cost of production are going up, uh, oil and energy and food, and that leads prices to go up. But some of that is temporary. Like, we didn't forget how to make cars. You know, we still know how to make cars, as bad as they are, but we are learning how to even to make electric cars. So, uh, as soon as we got chips, the car production would go start, and the price of cars would go down. And that's what's happening. If you talk to, uh, you know, uh, I had a chance to talk to the CEO of one of the big car companies, he said, by the end of the year, we're going to have the car problem solved, and the price will come down. The price of energy, went way up, it's still high, but in the United States it's come down. So inflation in the United States actually over the last two months has been zero. So we've gotten, you know, I don't want to say it's going to stay there, but if you get control of, the, of, of these factors that are driving the prices, uh, inflation will come down. The important point I want to make though is Raising interest rates is not going to cause there to be more energy, more food, more cars. Uh, 
it's not going to solve the problem. But it will take heat out, out, out of the economy, right? Yeah, if you take enough heat out of the economy and cause a deep enough depression, yeah. prices will be moderated. Yeah. But the cure is worse than the disease. It's not going to have a very big effect. Better are some of the things that actually Europe is trying to do, which are supply-side effects, try to curb the price of energy, the way Europe uh, priced energy, linking it with the cost of gas, led to an enormous disturbance. It's not like the average cost of energy, of electricity, has gone up a thousand percent. It's gone up a lot. Yeah. But it's not anywhere near as much as the price of electricity has gone up in England and many other countries. As a politician, what do you do? I think for a normal Danish family, it, it will be an additional cost of almost 1,500 euros, 1,500 dollars yeah. a month with the electricity so, price going up. What should you do as a politician in this environment? So uh, let, me, let me first talk about the United States because that's easier. Yeah. And, then, and then come to your... For the United States, it's, it's actually relatively easy. America is close to energy neutral. So the increase in the price of energy has been nothing but a redistribution from ordinary consumers to the fossil fuel companies. They're the winners, and Americans, consumers, ordinary households, are the losers. And it's just a redistribution. So the answer is pretty obvious. A windfall profits tax is what you ought to impose with the proceeds distributed in ways that protect the most vulnerable. And, uh, it's win, it's windfall, so obvious. Windfall property tax, that's a, that's a tax on super profit, right? On the increase in profits. Yeah, it's right. not, you know, when I, I, I sometimes jokingly say that, you know, CEOs and companies say they need to get a reward for their efforts. So, uh, I jokingly say, If Exxon had actually been behind the war in Ukraine and had persuaded Putin, then you might argue that Exxon ought to get rewarded, perversely, and probably sent to jail. But, uh, but the fact is, he had nothing to do with it. So why is Exxon getting all these profits? Why is the CEO going to get rewarded, I'm sure, with a bonus because profits have gone up? Was it anything that he did to deserve it? Absolutely not. But so the answer is very, very simple. We know what the normal profit level is, what all the excess of profits ought to be taxed away and, 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 and then redistributed to those who are Uh, who are suffering. And now you have 30 seconds to answer the hard part, Europe. Well, Europe obviously is in a more difficult position, but there are enormous excess profits still in, in uh, many of the companies that are involved in the energy market. So there are still oil producers who are making a bundle. Uh, gas producers are making a bundle. One of the interesting things is that Norway, which is one of the beneficiaries, has made statements about a willingness to pay those extra taxes to help the rest. So, you know, it, when there is a little bit of social solidarity, you actually get an, a, a support for a windfall profits tax. Mm -hmm.
Mm -hmm. it, it sounds more difficult in Europe, I think. Well, I mean, if there were more companies like, uh, like Equinor, which yes. is the new yes. form of stat oil, all the oil companies don't want to mm -hmm. label about oil, so they've changed their names, like BP being beyond petroleum, uh, rather, <laughs> rather than the British petroleum. But uh, the, the fact is, they are making lots of money in a way that cannot be justified in terms of just desserts for their efforts. And, that, and at the same time, parts of our population, European population, are suffering enormously. In 2002, you wrote this book, Globalization and its Discontent. It was like, it's an instant classic, I think it's fair to say. Is this the end of globalization we are seeing now? I think globalization is really uh, being challenged. Um, I mean, there, there are certain aspects of globalization that have really, I think we should call attention to and celebrate right now. For instance, uh, if you think about the pandemic and the production of the vaccine, when I think about how that was produced with uh, the basic research done by a Hungarian woman working in an American university mm. uh, and then brought to market largely by some Turkish scientists working in a German company. Uh, that's an example of globalization that worked well, where it's a globalization of ideas where scientists all over the world pooled their ideas together to very quickly uh, generate a vaccine against uh, um, uh, COVID-19. But then you look at other aspects of where we are today, <laughs> things are very uh, ugly. I mean, the fact that uh, the WTO refused to give a waiver on intellectual property for the COVID-19 vaccine, even though governments financed more than 90% of the cost, uh, resulting in you know tens of thousands of people dying and, and probably hundreds of thousands of millions getting the disease unnecessarily, unnecessarily, and allowing the disease to fester so it can mutate and hurt us mm. with mutations that were more uh, uh, contagious or more dangerous. That was a real failure of globalization, where the rules that we are constructed really were, exhibit a kind of selfishness that has undermined global solidarity enormously. But right now, uh, there are two things going on that are, I think, long-term, uh, going uh, three things probably, that are going to undermine globalization. Um, the first two are, uh, are obvious. Uh, uh, the war, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, obviously has, has polarized the world. Um, the U.S. probably overcharacterizes it as a war between democracy and authoritarianism. But that then fits into the second issue, which is the U.S., and this is bipartisan, uh, has developed a, a real um, opposition to China. Hmm. And, and 
Uh, how this plays out uh, is uh, a matter of speculation, but, but clearly it's going to, Europe is being caught in the middle of that particular uh, uh, battle. Um, and the third is exhibited, you know, in the beginning of the uh, Russia invasion of Ukraine, the developing countries were very supportive of uh, the West in the uh, resisting uh, the attack on Ukraine, but that has waned. Hmm. And that's partly because of the increase in food and energy prices, but partly out of a real anger at how we treated COVID-19 vaccines. Hmm. You know, what we thought was a battle just about intellectual property in Europe, in Geneva, has global ramifications because the West was so selfish that you know there was the, all that vaccine hoarding that they called vaccine apartheid, that and they were left to die, uh, has I think left a, a, a bitterness that I feel very strongly in the third world. So so that there has been an increasing uh, split. So we should be really worried about globalization. That this this could be the end of globalization. I wouldn't say the end, but it will be a reshaping uh, the doctrines that about free flow of idea, free flow of goods, capital across countries. It's always a little bit of a, of a myth. Uh, that idea, I think, is, is really being questioned. Let me just give you one example. Um, you may know that the United States passed a some $250 billion dollar uh, bill to uh, try to get a chip industry inside the United States, you know, industrial policy to, to try to strengthen uh, the production of chi chips so we wouldn't be so dependent on Taiwan. To me, what, what was so interesting about that, and I, I, th I think it's a good idea that we have that ca capacity, but it violated the WTO rules without any question. But there was no questioning in the United States about that. No one, I mean, I really, nowhere in the media, nowhere in, when I talk to Secretary of Commerce or we talk to anybody, no one asked the question, well, is this consistent with WTO rules? WTO was viewed almost as uh, an institution of ancient history. I think we're way too busy uh, watching the Kardashians, so that's, uh, that's probably why people, they don't react. But the war in Ukraine, that really made attention, uh, and there's a lot of political impact on what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, there, right now, throughout the Western world, in Europe and in, in the US, there's a huge increase in defense spending. Is that a wisely way to spend our money? Well, uh, um you know, you wish you didn't have to spend money on defense. Mm. Uh, and um, I once, you know, I, I wrote one book uh, in the midst of the uh, war in Iraq where I was very concerned about uh, all this defense spending. And I said, we were spending, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars on weapons that didn't work against enemies that didn't exist. And 
but the fact is that the Russian invasion is a message that we still live in a world where things happen that uh, where we have to defend ourselves. Now, I think we have to think more carefully. You know, the the in general, the the war, the kinds of wars, conflicts we're likely to fight are going to be different, mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, more of the spending obviously has to be on cybersecurity than it was uh, before. But the, for Europe, I think the, there is an important lesson. Uh, not so much of the war in Ukraine, uh, but uh, having to do with the United States. I think you have to ask the question, what would have happened if Trump were the president when Russia invaded? <laughs> no, I mean, that's, a, that's a, a scary question, but it is a hypothetical that is not that far from reality. I mean, he claims he won the election in 2020, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I mean, the reality is that there is a certain um, riskiness of American politics mm. that you cannot rely, you know, that 80% of the Republican Party has become a cult mm. where they are trying to suppress free elections. Mm. They are trying to gerrymander. They are trying to prevent uh, African Americans, Hispanics from voting. Um, they're trying to, uh, you know, actually make sure that people who will, uh, who are the register, who, who oversees the electoral process are partisans and will not give a fair reading. So uh, as sad as it is for me, I, I think the reality is that Europe has to rely on itself. And, and that means you do have to spend more on your own defense. I really think it is important for anybody who believes in democracy and human rights. You're one of the strongest critics of the European Union, uh, especially the European Monetary Union. Do you think that we are able to take care of ourselves, or do we still need uh, our American big brother to look after us? Uh, My criticism, what what I said was that the euro was a halfway house, and as a halfway house, it, it was not stable. You either had to, had to have, it, it was an economic arrangement where the economics had gotten ahead of the politics. And um, uh, my view was, I hoped that the politics would catch up with economics. So I think the right answer is that there needs to be closer economic and political integration in Europe. And with the events that have happened since then, both on the side of what we see in Russia and to some extent in China, and what you see in the United States with Trump, I think this imperative for Europe to become more uh, politically united uh, becomes even stronger. So to me, that is the answer to the problems that I see in the Euro. But since you made that advice, uh, we had Brexit, so something went wrong. Uh, yeah, and I think they regret it. 
Uh, and I think uh, they wouldn't do it again. Um, but, you know, history has a way of going in a particular direction. <laughs> Let's move back to the U.S. Uh, November 8th, what will you be doing? Well, I, yeah, obviously, we'll, everybody will be watching these elections. Uh, I'm hopeful. Yeah. Um, and I'm particularly hopeful over the Senate uh, for a very bad reason, that uh, the uh, Republicans uh, have overreached. And um, it's a real example of ideology uh, trumping reason and strategy. Mm. So um, when the Republican Supreme Court, using really bad law and bad reason, bad logic, decided to reverse Roe versus Wade, what that did is energized large fractions of the population. Now, the Supreme Court had made a lot of other bad decisions, too, and I could go through them. I mean, that would be America, getting into the weeds of American politics, you know, about uh, judgments about administrative law, environmental law. Um, you know, every decision they make is uh, uh, so contrary to, to what I think is reason. Um, and it's had, uh, I, I think, an extraordinarily divisive effect uh, on America, uh, not only uh, because of the nature of the, you know, of the decisions themselves, but Roe versus Wade, for instance, has made uh, people who are more progressive in America mm. feel even more that this Constitution that was written 240 years ago, written by a group of rich, white, slave-owning men, of what legitimacy does that have in the 21st century? And before this Supreme Court, we had a process where people were trying to say, yes, we know that, let's keep, let's forget that origins of that constitution, and we'll adapt this piece of paper to the times as they change. And that makes sense. So, so but this new, the, the, these ideologues on the right are saying, oh, these were great wise men who, uh, got an oracle from heaven, uh, and we now have to interpret that oracle. Hmm. And uh, we can't dispute, or we interpret it as if we were living in 1789. I mean, can you believe uh, that? Uh, talking about old white men with power, 20th of November, it's a big day. Biden is turning 80. So here's an old white guy. <laughs> How is he? I don't think he's that old. Let me You're say that. No, no. I, I think. He, no, I, I don't. I, I'll dispute that. Uh, but that's not. Uh, Maybe that's not. Particularly but are you, are you invited old. to his birthday? What? Are you invited to his birthday? No. no, no. no. Uh, 
Okay, then we have the, the old, influential, <laughs> white guy called <laughs> Bernie Sanders. He turned 81 last week. <laughs> How is the, the democratic establishment doing? Um, yeah, actually, there are a lot of good, younger men and women uh, on the Democratic Party. Uh, my, most of these do not get the attention of go internationally. Are we talking about Hillary Clinton? Or? No, no, we're oh, talking okay. about, yeah. about the governors of Michigan as, a, as one example. Um, and then there are male governors in, in, in Illinois and, and California that are very good and dynamic. So I think, you know, there, and, and you have to remember, uh, I, mean, I, I think uh, people in Denmark will appreciate, uh, you know, you have about six million people. A governor of California is uh, the fifth largest economy in the world. And uh, I don't know the exact number, but is probably 30, 40 million people. So, I mean, the experience of being a governor in a state like California or even Michigan or Illinois is a real experience. So, uh, the, these are people who, who are uh, experienced political leaders who are very, who I think are very talented. And so, I think there is a lot more, um, there's a lot more talent in the Democratic Party than you're seeing at the top. Okay, so you're an optimist. I'm an optimist. 55% uh, of the Americans, they disapprove of Biden. What about you? Have you been satisfied with the, the president so far? Yes, yeah. actually. Uh, I think he's managed an extraordinarily dif difficult situation. Um, you know, he, he began with a pandemic ravaging the country and uh, with a uh, former president who thought the way to uh, solve the problem of, of uh, COVID-19 was to drink chlorine because it, was, uh, uh, it would kill the germs. <laughs> it would also kill you, but that was a minor detail. Um, so uh, you, 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 he inherited this, world, this country that was both very divided and where uh, uh, ravaged by this disease. Now, uh, he came into office trying, you know, with, with uh, an agenda of trying to calm the country down um, and at the same time address both the uh, disease and the economic fallout. He put forward a really successful vaccination program mm. and uh, a economic program that made the economic downturn in the United States much less than anywhere else in the world that had been comparable. Remember, we had more than a million people die from COVID-19. So uh, that was really managed well. And at the same time, he used those funds to begin to address some of the social problems. Childhood poverty in the United States, which is really unacceptably high, was reduced in one year by 40%. So, you know, that was a, a, a real achievement. Uh, he did not succeed in getting the disease down as quickly as possible. That was because of the 
irrationality that he had to deal with. What I don't know anybody could have dealt with the, the anti-vaxxers, the people who refused to wear masks. Uh, you know, the whole uh, reaction against science was something that was very difficult, I think, impossible. I don't, I don't know if anybody could have dealt with that. Then we had the further political problem that he didn't really control the Senate. There was one or two people who were probably best described as closet Republicans, um, who made it very difficult to get anything through. But he finally got a large number of bills through. He got the largest climate change bill. It also did a lot for healthcare costs. Uh, he got this uh, bill on industrial policy through. First time we've ever had anything like that to try to steer our economy. He got a gun control bill through, uh, a veterans bill through. So you have, it, it was, uh, in that package, a lot of achievements. So all in all, you're, you're satisfied with the president. And now I have a really, really tough question, and it's yes or no. Should he run for re-election? Um, I think... Yes or no? no. Oh, that, that, <laughs> um, I think if Trump run, runs, it will be very tempting for him to run. But I think if a younger Republican runs, I think uh, almost surely it will be a, a younger Democrat that will run. Hmm. Two years from now, Biden, he will be 82. Uh, and which brings me to the subject of... Uh, still young. He's still young. <laughs> you have to remember, with, with uh, modern medicine, uh, 82 is really 62. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think we, we know that, we know that, yeah. Uh, boomers versus Zoomers, like, the, the, like there's so many tensions in our societies and in our uh, economy. Um, and there seems to me that there's a generational gap, like people, how many people is under 30 years old here in the audience? Uh, I'm so sorry for you guys. <laughs> Are you sorry for them as well? Uh, it is an important dimension of inequality in our society. You know, I've, I've written a lot about inequality, but inequalities across generations is an important topic that has not gotten the attention that it deserves. And I think uh, the, you might say the worst, the two worst aspects of this inequality are climate change, that we're giving them a world that's burning, mm -hmm. and uh, I'll be gone before it fully burns. Uh, but I think it's a real serious problem that w we need to address. But the second uh, more mundane issue, uh, for in, in, uh, very evident in the United States and many countries in Europe, is young people can't afford housing. Um, and uh, part of the reason for that is the low interest rates that have been maintained, the excessively low, you know, I've complained before about excessively high interest rates. <laughs> but I also think that excessively low interest rates can be a problem. 
Since 2008, since the global financial crisis, interest rates have been close to zero. And we have interest rates that are that low, it obviously inflates asset prices. And uh, the owners of those assets were older people, by and large, and they become, if you were wealthy enough in the beginning, you got even wealthier. And that is part of the reason why there's such high wealth inequality today. But that is a barrier to younger people getting a house. Is it easy to fix? Uh, well, I think uh, it's not easy to fix, but I think uh, one has to recognize that there is this intergenerational equity problem. And the result of that is I think you need to do subsidies for people who are younger people buying a house and capital gains taxes on the capital gains that people have gotten on their old houses. Uh, it wasn't anything they did. It was monetary policy that was really the driving hmm. force behind these large capital gains. And I think that creates these inequities, a little bit analogous to the inequities we were talking about before. And when you have these inequities, you, you ought to ta tax the windfall gains and help those who are being hurt. Is this generational gap, is that more important than the concept of classes? Um, I think it, it is of first order importance. Uh, there is still, you know, uh, as a, there's still large differences between the poor and the rich. Um, Denmark, at least a lot of the statistics that I've seen, is one of the countries where there's more social mobility than others. The United States, you know, talks about uh, the American dream, but when you look at the data, uh, the American dream is a myth. Uh, that, yes, there are a few people who make it from the bottom to the top. And that's why newspapers write about them. <laughs> They're so unusual that it's a, it's a good story. But the, when a social scientist talks about, you know, a dream or, you know, an opportunity, what we mean is what is the probability? And the probability of somebody at the bottom making it to the top is very low in the United States, actually lower than in almost any of the other advanced countries. And in Denmark, it's higher than in uh, or Scandinavia more generally, it's higher. And I think that's one of the attributes uh, that you should be, uh, make sure that you could do everything to keep. Talking about uh, success, which is very interesting. If I say the name Elon Musk, what do you say? <laughs> Well, I think it's a mixed picture. Uh, you know, I think he's done a, a, a very impressive job of uh, succeeding in creating a, an electric car when, earlier than other people. I mean, now everybody's into it, but that was an important innovation. Uh, it, and he did it with determination. Um, on the other hand, uh, Many of his other uh, activities, statements, you know, 
we don't need to send more people out in outer space, you know, wasting all that money, you know, when we have so many problems here on Earth. I mean, it seems a little bit incongruous. Um, and uh, I'm very concerned when he uh, at first tried to get Twitter, and now he doesn't want to get Twitter. But to have a major uh, me media, way people communicate, controlled by somebody whose views are so peculiar, hmm. um, and you know who who says who doesn't believe in social harms. I mean, you have a regulatory framework here, or you're about to get a regulatory framework hmm. here that may be able to mediate to, to restrict some of those social harms from social media. But in the United States, we have no really good mechanism, and. I worry a lot about having somebody like Musk controlling uh, a major way that mm. ideas get disseminated. And he's also like, I think he's the richest person in the world. And that's something that really changed also the conversation about our economy, that we have these super rich people. Uh, and there's this income uh, gap, the quality, inequality is growing and growing. These super rich people, should we be grateful because like they contribute with their entrepreneurship you you say that uh, elon musk like he made a, this electric car tesla and like uh, jeff bezos made amazon and so on like it has been like in mark zuckerberg and uh, and the google brothers like they really made some great inventions like so well some of these are you know you have to under uh, ask um they made important innovations um they were built on, most of them, on basic research that was funded by the public. They would not have existed without the internet. And the internet was funded publicly. The creation of the inter internet was done largely by the US government, but some other governments funded publicly. You couldn't have it without a browser financed publicly. So their success is based on publicly funded research. Secondly, somebody like uh, Zuckerberg um, uh, made an innovation that was not that much different from alternative uh, uh, platforms. His was successful, the others not. But, and that was what we call those network externalities when lots of people join on one platform. And, but that was almost an accident. If you said they had gone to the other one, would the world have been much different? No. And a lot of his money comes from what I think socially destructive behavior. Getting engagement, and the way of getting engagement is getting enragement. And so I think they played a very important role in the polarization of our society, and we know they played a role in some of the worst things that have happened, like the massacre of the Rohingyas um, in uh, Miramar. So, uh, you know, some of their success is built on really socially harmful uh, activity. But whatever you think about uh, that, the fact of the matter is, they would have engaged in that entrepreneurial activity if we taxed them a lot more. If we taxed them at 90%, they still would have done that. 
you know, can you repeat? Rather than having did you three hundred, did, did you say ninety percent? Yeah, I said ninety. Ninety percent. Okay. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> If rather than having three hundred billion, they had only thirty billion, that's enough to live. Oh. Um, <laughs> you know, and. <laughs> So, Professor Sixtus, just to sum up, like we shouldn't worry too much about inflation. We should spend more money and tax the rich more, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I'm starting to getting nervous. Is that because I have just? Well, been... uh, if you have 300 billion, <laughs> maybe you, are you worried about losing 270? No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm worried about growth in our society. I'm, no, I'm that's worried not. About, uh, The point I made is that these guys. Most of them are guys um, would have done the same entrepreneurial activity, uh, and their growth was founded on public investment. And we can't have public investment without public resources. And if we took that money and recycled it in more basic research, more better infrastructure, spending that creates more social solidarity rather than the kind of polarization that we have in the United States, we would be a more productive society. When we cut the taxes, when Trump cut the taxes in 2017 on the very rich and on the corporations, the promise was Cutting the taxes would lead to more investment. It didn't. It didn't lead to any more. What it did lead to was more share buybacks, more dividends, hmm. more money uh, in the pockets of the, some of the very richest, but a public sector that was starved, so that we were not able to respond as effectively as we could have to COVID-19. Do you know this joke? Two dignitaries are watching a military parade. At the very end, after all the tanks and missiles and marching men, comes a wagon with a few shabby, poorly dressed civilians inside. Who are the first? Who are they? The first man asks the second. Oh, the second man replies, "Those are economists. You wouldn't believe the damage they can cause." <laughs> uh, and 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 the reason I I mention this joke is that like. You've been talking about ideology is such an important part of uh, the profession of economics, and and that's pro I've probably brainwashed since I'm worried about the future of economics and our society when I'm talking to you. Uh, what is going to happen right now in, in the profession of economics for like the next 10 years? Well, uh, first let me say, um, you know, I sometimes jokingly say that economists ought to take. The Hippocratic Oath. You know, uh, when you become a doctor, uh, you have to take the Hippocratic Oath, which is do no harm. <laughs> And uh, there was one occasion where uh, the president of uh, a country wanted to know whether he should sign a free trade agreement with the, uh, the United States. And I happen to know that that president had been a doctor and had signed the Hippocratic Oath. So. I asked him, uh, "You're a doctor. You did sign the Hippocratic Oath," and he said, "Yes." And I said, "Well, then you can't uh, sign the free trade agreement <laughs> <laughs> because you're committed to doing no harm." So um, 
I think this is actually a very optimistic time for the economics profession because we've had 40 years of what is sometimes called neoliberalism, the idea that markets solve all problems, and it hasn't. Uh, that shouldn't be news. Um, that uh, growth has been slower than it was before the era of neoliberalism. Most of that growth has, benefits of that growth have gone to the very top. Um, there's been a lot more instability. We haven't, we faced an inequality crisis, a climate crisis. And finally, within the economics profession, not universally, but increasingly, especially among young people, there's a, uh, an awareness that those set of doctrines have failed and there's a search for a new, new thinking about how do we, to go back to the first question, you know, how do we organize society to make sure that the, there is an allocation of resources that is efficient, that promotes growth, but is also just and fair? And that is a question, you know, about something that is just and fair and addresses issues across generations like climate change that was totally outside the domain of standard economics for 40 years. Thomas so Piketty, did you read all his books from, from the first page to the last? I have to admit, no. <laughs> <laughs> If I had, I think, uh, It, I would have been underwater. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know his arguments, right? What? You know his arguments. Like his, I know his arguments. Yeah, yeah. I know him very yeah. well. Yeah. And, and, and is he, he's part of a new generation of economic thinkers uh, that will change the profession from the inside. Yeah, I mean, he's very, very concerned about inequality. Uh, he's provided an enormous data set that allows us to study inequality across, uh, across countries over time that has really enlightened us about the magnitude uh, of that inequality. And his most recent book, I mean, I think he's made a, a, a real effort to show how looking at these issues from a broader perspective, bringing in history and politics, is going to be the way you have to approach Uh, these questions. He's become ins insanely popular. Why is that, you think? Well, I, I think people are really concerned about these issues which were not in, uh, widely discussed within economics. I mean, when, even today, I mean, say, standard courses in economics do not even mention inequality or do not discuss inequality. Um, I teach a required graduate PhD course in economics, but it's uh, a course that's required because the standard courses have excluded most of the things that are interesting, I think. <laughs> so in our course, we talk about inequality, we talk about innovation, uh, we talk about behavioral economics, but so much of, of of what is of interest today is uh, not included in the standard framework. Mm. So I think, I think uh, uh, 
what he's talked about resonates with the problems where of, of global society today. I know that in the audience we have many uh, Danish business leaders. Should they be concerned about uh, inequality? Uh, yes, um, and you, you can say that they should be concerned for several reasons. I mean, the, the most fundamental, you might say, is moral. <laughs> that, uh, uh, you know, what is a just society? And just because you're a business leader, you're still part of society. <laughs> and so everybody should be thinking about these questions. But secondly, I think a divided society doesn't function well. Um, and, you know, what I say to people in Europe, in places like uh, uh, Denmark, look at the United States. Is that, if that's what you want, uh, don't think about equality. Uh, if you want a very divided society and you see what that does to tear apart the fabric, the inability to make public investments, the inability you know, to, to resolve common issues, that comes in part because we have an excessively divided society. Mm. And finally, uh, I think uh, it's good business. Uh, I think uh, workers who are not paid decent wages uh, are not likely to be as productive. So, so the business of business is still business? Uh, it's part of what they have to do, and, and I think, um, but all of these come together. I mean, I, you know, th there was a, a, a dinner at uh, Davos uh, I, I, that I go to every, every year, and, and um, uh, these are, you know, some very important uh, leading business. Uh, and a couple of years ago, one of the striking conversations was that one of the business leaders said he hadn't realized that a majority of his workers were not getting a living wage. And in the United States, you have a, a, uh, the minimum wage is seven dollars uh, and a quarter. That you know, a, a roughly fifteen thousand dollars a year, and uh, you can't quite pay rent for that in New York City. And there are a lot of firms paying that minimum wage. And what he did after he, I mean, you, you, I was surprised that he didn't realize that, but some of our previous meetings had induced him to go back and look at what his salaries, what, the, what he was paying. And he raised all of his workers' salaries to what he viewed was a livable wage, well above the minimum wage. He felt better about it, but I think he also felt it was better for the company. Better business, sure. Better business. Um, time is running so fast. Uh, and we have some people in, the, in streaming. We have to say goodbye to them now. Five minutes. Pleasure <laughs> to have you around somewhere in the world. And now we open the floor for questions. So please, and uh, Professor Stickler said that he can answer everything. <laughs> Yeah, please raise your hand and there will be some microphone people around. And then we start in the back. I think that's a good way to do it. And please keep them short and sweet. 
Professor Ciclis, thanks a lot for coming here. A question uh, on inflation. Wouldn't you, would you dispute uh, that the fiscal expansion in the US also led to a demand shock which pushed inflation up? Um, yeah, now, that is w one of the big issues of the debate. Did excessive spending, if I got the question right, is, sure. Did excessive spending, particularly in the beginning of the Biden administration, it was $2.9 trillion, and I, I don't know whether you, $2.9 trillion is a lot of money. Uh, and that was on top of uh, about $4, $5 trillion that had been spent previously. But, and, that led a lot of people to believe that it was excess spending, not a lot, a few people, to believe that it was excess spending that causing the inflation. It was a plausible hypothesis, but when you look at the data, there's no support for it. Uh, if that, if there were excess spending, you would have thought that aggregate real consumption would be above trend, it's below trend. Aggregate demand adjusted for inflation would be above trend, it's not. What happened was that we gave money to a lot of people who uh, didn't spend it, that's true. We couldn't perfectly target it. We, we might have been able to target it if we waited another two years, but meanwhile, the misery that would have been uh, resulted would have been unacceptable. So when you spend money, you know, rap, the, it was a, uh, a crisis and we spent money and it, it, it saved a lot of people. But a lot of people had excess cash balances. And there was a worry on the part of some that they would all go out and spend that money very quickly. But economic theory said, no, they won't. They'll take that and they'll spend it gradually over the rest of their lifetime. Why would they go? Because you haven't eaten in a restaurant for a year doesn't mean next year you're going to eat three times as much, which is what those guys said, okay? And the evidence is that the cash balances have not been spent down, except for... Um, there were a little bit of uh, spending down to pay taxes because capital, because of the low interest rates, stocks went up. People cashed in on the stocks because they were afraid interest rates were gonna go up. And that meant they had a lot of taxes on capital gains due. And the amount of the reduction in cash balances just shifted to the government. So that was the only spending. So there's been no excess spending. So that turns out to be a total canard. Hmm. Wow. So inflation is only due to Putin and the war in Ukraine. Oh, and the supply side problems. I haven't talked about all the supply. You know, I talked about cars, but, you know, China, which is the producer of the world, has not managed COVID-19 very well. And their lockdown policy has been, you know, uh, dramatic and drastic, 
and the result of it is that there are supply cha chain interruptions. Interestingly, the most recent data suggests that those two are being uh, are coming down very very rapidly. So, I mean, the, the important point is we will have to live through this. In the beginning, there were a lot of people saying, and I was, you know, the, that these were very temporary supply interruptions. We were wrong. The market was not as resilient as we had hoped. There were a few cases like lumber where we had a big lumber shortage, and four weeks later, the lumber came on and the prices went down. But there are some of them that took a year and a half, like in automobiles. Will we have high inflation one year from now? Uh, I think you will still have higher inflation than the inflation pre-pandemic. Okay. That you're not going to go down to 2% uh, overnight. But remember that 2% goal, you know, that 2% target, where did that come from? You know where it came from? It comes from economic science, I think. No, it came, it was pulled out of the thin air. Okay. People said, oh, we ought to have a target. What number would good? Well, zero is too low. What's another number? Two. Oh, great. So they pull that number two. It has no scientific validity. And in fact, there is a lot, uh, there is some economic literature that is supporting the view that in periods of a lot of structural change, and we're going through that, a higher number would be actually better. It would be better to have three or four. You know, that's not runaway inflation. You don't want runaway inflation, but we could live so, better. So, so 2%, that's out of the thin air, 4%, that's science. Yeah. No, but that, that we could live with a little bit higher level of inflation. Okay. We have some more time. Do we have time for questions? Yes. Uh, oh, there's so many. Uh, hello? Oh, somewhere over here? Hi. Uh, up here. Uh, where are we? Oh, up there. Okay, perfect. I just wonder. I just wonder what you see. Uh, how you see uh, cryptocurrency in the future? <laughs> um, cryptocurrency. Well, almost all economists uh, think that uh, cryptocurrency is a really bad idea, uh, even though a lot of young people like it. And uh, you know, I uh, I've been in economic policy for a, a long time. One of the things that we've been concerned about in, is increasing transparency in markets. What is crypto about? Secrecy. It's just because secrecy is done on a digital platform doesn't make secrecy any better. It is still a, the mechanism by which all kinds of malicious and uh, you know, nefarious activities occur. At least in the United States, we feel we have a good currency called the dollar. Yeah, it's going up. You know, we have a little inflation, but it's really mild. Uh, uh, you look at the fluctuations in bitcoins or in any of the, uh, they're much more unstable. So I think cryptocurrency, except for the ability to avoid, to engage in bad activities, money laundering and and things that you shouldn't do. Except for that, it has no advantages over uh, a good currency. Now, there are some little activities like 
uh, electronic transfer of funds from one account to another. But that has nothing to do with cryptocurrency. Uh, uh, having uh, a good electronic system of, of transaction is important, and we have the technology for it. Do you know what's the major impediment? Yeah. Monopoly power. Uh, Visa, MasterCard uh, have a kind of monopoly power, and American Express, I don't want to be exclusive here, um, uh, and that allows them to charge interest rates, uh, charge merchants fees that are outrageous, something that should cost pennies, a fraction of a penny, they charge one, two, three, four percent. Now, Europe, you do better than the United States because you have better regulation. But, Professor Stickless, shouldn't you embrace new ideas? Yeah, I do, but when they're good. I don't <laughs> embrace new ideas when they're bad. <laughs> have more questions, please? Uh, we need uh, a woman question now. Yeah. yeah. Do we have a, yeah? Um, hi, I wanted to ask, uh, the Gini coefficient is measured based on income. How useful is that um, compared to other measurements that could be based on, for example, wealth? It's about the Gini, the Gini, it's rightly understood, the Gini coefficient, oh, is that yeah. a, is There that are a many measures of uh, inequality. Income is one, wealth is another. Wealth, by the way, in general is uh, twice uh, or more unequally divided by most measures than income. So wealth inequality is, is even more of a problem, and wealth is important because uh, it, it gives you, an, in a sense, power um, an opportunity that, that income doesn't uh, fully reflect. Um, in my mind, uh, the most important measure of inequality are inequalities in well-beings. I mean, one of the things I've been uh, working on for, for a long time is const uh, the idea that uh, GDP doesn't really incorporate adequately measure, reflect measures of well-being. And the same thing is uh, true of income. And uh, this is especially true, important, when you uh, compare across countries. Um, because, uh, for instance, you know, one of the distinctive aspects of the United States, while we have higher income, we have a lower life expectancy. Health is really important for most people. <laughs> and then, I mean, especially as you get older, you become more aware of that. Uh, but the environment is an important part of well-being. And security is an important part of well-being. And uh, income doesn't reflect all these aspects. And there are very big differences between countries in the quality of the and inequalities of healthcare. But, but yeah. Professor Stiglitz, if you measure everything, then you measure nothing. Then we need to be more specific. Well, you want, uh, the, the question is, does income, income is a summary statistic. Mm. Is it the best summary statistic for describing how well the scarce resources of a country are distributed. 
and my view is no, it's not. That uh, if a, a if uh, uh, you provide to everybody quality health care, uh, access to good public transportation, uh, as free university education, you are creating a more equal society even if income inequality, as you conventionally measured, not including this, uh, shows a, a different thing. So, you know, we've got one of the things that Biden, you were asking me about Biden's success. Another thing he did is to uh, forgive ten to $20,000 of student debt. The average student graduating from college has thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 of debt. It's a noose around their neck. But if you go to graduate school, you'll have hundred dollars or $200,000 of debt. And it's a barrier of young people, of poor people going to college. Uh, the total amount of student debt is over $1.5 trillion. I mean, it really is an aspect of the inequalities in the United States which you can't really appreciate until, unless you see the comparison with other countries. Okay, we have a question over here. Here in the front, up. Oh, sorry. Yeah. The gentleman with the tie, I think. Oh, oh, it's a poll. Yeah, yeah, okay. Please, Paul, please keep it short, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hi, Joe, don't let you interrupt by, by this guy. I have a gift for you, if I may, right? This is a report we made in Europe one year ago in one of your commissions, oh. the Great Shift, and yeah. uh, from a broken world to sustainable well-being, uh, yeah. as, as based upon our common ambitions to make Europe stronger. There's 242 proposals, concretely thinking, but what I would like to say, just finally, being short, is I think the, the hypothesis of your is you can't do one without the other. So what we're doing here when we call it the great shift is we have so many problems we have to solve sustainably and at the one time by acting, uh, composed, and that's what it is all about. So thanks Good. for coming, <laughs> <Joe>. <laughs> <A> pleasure <laughs> to meet you. That's, that's okay, thank you. Wow. That was the shortest time I ever heard Paul. <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Paul. And up here, like, like the guy we... Uh, yeah, if you go back. Next, next time, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Hi, uh, thanks for coming. Um, I have a question into, uh, earlier you were talking about how because uh, the state kind of uh, enabled, like uh, it in a way like uh, invented the internet. And so in that sense, it enabled um, technology companies to get a lot of uh, power, right? And in some senses like, monopoly power. Um, and you were alluding to the fact that because the government enabled this to happen, that they, in a way, deserve a higher share of the profits. You said 90% for Facebook. I'm wondering, is this an argument for higher taxes generally? Because the state, in a lot of ways, its function is to um, encourage entrepreneurial uh, activity and that sort of thing. And also, where does it stop? Like, where does it become like the government is taking too much credit for uh, economic activity and kind of disincentivizes business to a degree? I don't know, I'm sorry if that wasn't totally clear, but <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, th that's really one of the hardest uh, questions that economics uh, has to address, you know, uh, uh, at what level uh, does uh, taxation discourage effort or entrepreneurship? Um, to what extent, uh, you know, whenever, uh, uh, there's a famous quote from Isaac Newton that, that he, where he said he stands on the shoulders of great people, that, uh, ideas that came before him, and we all build on, on the work of others. Um, you know, every entrepreneur likes to believe that uh, he did it all by himself, but nobody does anything by themselves. I mean, that, that, they, that somebody gave them an education, somebody, and the ideas that they use, they take for granted, but they're, they were created over centuries and, and many, the advances in technology, uh, we said, a lot of these key advances were created by government in the last 30 years. So I think what we need to do is a combination of things. There is a, uh, some move that would basically um, ensure that uh, when government innovates, it takes a patent on those innovations, but then allows anybody to use those innovations, but in return for royalties or a share. And so recognizing that we as a government, you know, we as a society are making important public investments, but in fact, we just give it away. Uh, an interesting thing, you were mentioning Tesla. I don't know if you know, the US government put almost a half a billion dollars into Tesla. It was a good investment, except for one thing. We didn't demand an upshare, uh, an upside in the investment. And maybe that's why this state shouldn't be an investor. Well, no, we have to learn how to be a smarter investor. I mean, just, you know, just because the Federal Reserve failed in 2008, in the years to prevent an economic crisis, no one is saying that we ought to get rid of central banks. They fail all the time. But what do we say when they fail? We say, we ought to learn the lesson. No, we need a central bank, macroeconomics. The economy doesn't reg regulate itself automatically, but we need to do better. And so I think the same thing is true of, you might say, industrial policy. We, we are pretty good at picking winners. I mean, we did pick the internet. We did pick electric vehicles. And we picked the, actually the firms that actually succeeded in doing some of these things. But we gave the money away, basically. We didn't get the returns that we should have gotten. And the same thing, by the way, Pfizer has walked away with billions of dollars of profits from the mRNA platform that we publicly invested. And they're claiming, the president of Pfizer pretends to claim that it was all his innovation. Um, he couldn't have done it without the work that was done in developing the mRNA platform. 
Professor Slicht is about, picking winners. I think that uh, the Royal Library did an excellent job picking <laughs> you for tonight. And <laughs> uh, we have to conclude this uh, amazing session. But I do have good news. You are hereby invited to come back to Copenhagen in 2024. <laughs> and, and when we meet all of us, because like we have all your fellow economists here in the audience and you have to train us to become a PhD students and all this, do you think the world would be a better place two years from now? Um, <laughs> I think we're at the knife edge. Uh, I don't want to. You can't. You can't end like that. Knife edge. Like that's. <laughs> so, uh, I was told by one of my publishers, you should never end on a down note. Yeah. So first, I'll give you the <laughs> negative side, and then I'll give you the positive. So the negative side is. Uh, there is a possibility that the Republicans, uh, uh, Trump, could win in 2024. And, uh, you know, just God help us is all I can say. Uh, the, uh, the risk to our democracy uh, is something that cannot be ignored. I mean, I, I really, Biden said it, but I think Biden was sharing a widespread view and you know, this is not an extreme view. It is there is a real risk to our democracy. And when I say our democracy, the American democracy, but that will have global implications. But I'm also I want to end on an optimistic note. There's, uh, I think, a 50-50 chance, maybe 60-40. <laughs> I'll say 60-40. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that there will be a, a renewal, a, you know, an understanding of, of, the, of where we've been and uh, a kind of uh, progressive uh, way forward that will finally begin to address so many of the key issues that we face today. Professor Stiglitz, thank you so much for being here tonight.